morning and welcome to Portico. And for those of you just coming in, good morning to you as well. The week before the time change always gets me as well. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Good to have you with us, whether you're watching online, whether you're watching over in the chapel or in the video cafe or here in our live. We are so happy to be with you and, and have a service together. Now, who wants to have a little fun in the room this morning? Have a little fun? Okay. Any, who are the rule breakers? Uh, yeah, that's right. Own that. Who are the rule keepers? Some rule keepers. You say you're rule keepers. Okay. Here, here comes the test. I bet some of you broke a provincial rule this morning. How many kept it under the speed limit 40 kilometers an hour on your way down Aaron Center Drive? Yeah. Not very many of you, did you? I bet a lot of you hit 41. You are breaking a provincial rule. You're not a rule keeper. You're a rule breaker. Did anybody break a family rule this morning? I don't know what that may be. You drank out of the milk carton or you left a toilet seat up. You're rule breakers. More and more of you are. What about some? Did anybody lose their patience with someone else this morning? I don't, you don't have to put your hand up for that one. But then you're breaking the golden rule. Treat others the way. You're provincial rule breakers, family rule breakers, golden rule breakers. We, we tend to break rules from time to time. And as we reach the final week of our Life Rhythm series, we, we're going to find that we don't do rules in our society all that well. Over the past few months, we've learned that we need to love well, we need to grieve well, we need to break the power of the past, and we've looked into all of these things that help us build an emotionally healthy spiritual life. And this morning, as we close our, our series, we're going to look at something called the rule of life. Now, a rule of life is something that helps us frame everything we do, how we think, how we live, how we believe, and, and, it, and it speaks into all these areas of our life. And as I was preparing for this morning's service, I spoke to a few people and asked them, what's your rule of life? What are the things that just determine, that are the framework, that are the undergirding of everything that you do? So I had a conversation with Pastor Doug, and I said, you know, can you just pour into this message this morning? What would you share with the people of your church uh, what your rule of life is. And his rule of life was quite simple. It was any day with a motorcycle is a good day. That's, uh, that's what he said. Is, <laughs> that was the deep wisdom he had to share with us this morning. So then I, I said, maybe I should dig a little deeper. I'm going to go to our former mayor, Hazel McCallion, and many of you have seen her face on ads and in commercials the last little while. I said, Mayor McCallion, what, what is the rule of life that just undergirds everything that you do? And she said, never retire, like ever. That's <laughs> direct quote. Now that's from her. So, so then I thought, I got to keep asking. So I went to Pastor Dwayne and to William and to Joe Ash and our worship team. And, and I said, guys, what is the one thing that you just, you believe beyond more than anything, shadow of a doubt, this is the rule of your lives. And they said, bow ties make any outfit classier. That's what, uh, that's, that's how they, they live every day. And then, and then actually, this was a phone conference all the way from Kansas City. I had a phone conversation with Jose Bautista, and, and I, I suggested a, ru- a rule of life for him. And I said, Jose, who cares what they say? Bat flips are awesome. So, <laughs> so we, know, we know that everyone has things and principles that, that govern the way that they live. But this morning, we want to dig a little bit deeper, and we want to see... What are the things that should form the rule of life for the way that we live our lives, our spiritual lives? And the word rule can be a little unfriendly because as some of you already unashamedly put your hand up and say, you love to break rules. So we, we don't like the thing of, of the concept of a rule. We, we feel it's something that is dictated to us and, and it's restrictive. And how could we put that into our spiritual lives? You can't create a rule for how I grow. The way that I grow is individual. It's, it's fluid. 
But as we study this word rule, we'll find that it's actually based out of a Greek word, and the, the Greek word is trellis. Now, who knows what a trellis is? Anyone in the room know what a trellis is? It's the wooden structure, the wooden framework that is in place so that a plant or, or, or a vegetable, something can grow, and it, it provides structure, and it provides form so that the growth can take place. See, that plant is going to grow regardless if the trellis is there or not. But if the structure isn't there, it grows all over the place. And some of you have experienced this in your gardens. So that's why you have to put something there so it grows tall and it grows strong. And actually, the growth is exponential when you have the trellis there because it provides the basis that's needed for the best growth. And we know this to be true in all areas of our lives. We have our junior highs in our service with us this morning. They're not meeting upstairs. Junior highs, where are you? Wave at me. We got a few junior highs here. When you were going through school and you were learning math facts, you had to learn what are the important things. They said, what's, what's six times eight? Guys, what, back there, what's six times eight? Yell it out. 48. You learned it, yeah. So, and I, you thought, I need to learn this math fact. I need to learn this math fact. And you thought, what is the purpose of all this? I don't, I don't understand. And, and then they said, well, there's actually a whole times table and there's a whole chart and there's, there's a form to this. Now, my grade four or five teacher, they didn't tell me this, but did you know the rule for the nine times table? Anybody know the, what the little trick is there? That the solution always adds up to nine. Nine times two is 27, and two and seven, you add that together, it's nine. Nine times, nine times four is 36. Or, that was nine times three. See, I, you caught me there. <laughs> Thank you for the, for the help there this morning. Nine times four is 36. Three and six, you add that together, it's nine. It's a whole structure. It's a whole format. And when you figured that out, your growth just took off. So the rule was actually beneficial for you. It wasn't restrictive. If you've ever done any kind of physical training, you're trying to get in shape, you understand that if you don't have form, if you don't have structure, it's actually not all that effective. There's this mass amount of people that go to the gym every January, and they're like, I'm going to get in shape this year, I'm going to do it. Maybe you're one of those people, and you go January 1, you're there, and you're lifting weights like this, and you're running, and you're like, I'm going to kill it this year, I'm going to be in shape. And then it's hard to go back the next day, and the day after, you've got to go back to work, so you're not going to do that. And there's no form to it. And your muscles hurt, and you're not seeing any growth, so you give up. But if you sit with a trainer, they'll say, here are your workout days, here are your rest days, here are your cardio days, here are your your weightlifting days. And when you add structure to that plan, your growth just multiplies. Well, if we know this to be true educationally and physically, why wouldn't we apply that to our spiritual lives? And what we're going to see this morning is that when we apply form and structure and rule to our spiritual life, our growth can grow exponentially. And we're going to go to a passage in Scripture, and we're going to study how the early church figured this out. But here's what the C.S. Lewis Institute, how they describe a rule of life. The words will be on the screen beside you. I think they're in your notes as well. A rule of life is an intentional pattern of spiritual disciplines that provides structure and direction for growth in holiness. A rule establishes a rhythm for life in which is helpful for being formed by the Spirit, a rhythm that reflects a love for God, and get this, a respect for how He made us. The disciplines which we build into our rhythm of life help us shed the old self and allow our new self in Christ to be formed. They're saying when we can understand the way that we're made 
and the patterns that can help us grow, we can shed that old self and we can grow in a, in a totally different way. This Wednesday at CLG Experience here, as well as in your home groups, your community life groups, you're going to watch the video and study what Pete Scazzaro says about the rule of life. You're going to help develop that idea a little bit, a little bit further. But what we're going to discover is that when we submit to structure, we can transform the way that we grow. So as we close out our series, I'm going to ask you, would you be open to saying, Lord, can you teach me something this morning about a way that I could undergird my faith so that I can grow in brand new ways and grow in leaps and bounds if I just make a few adjustments and adhere to the rule of life that we see in Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going to go. And if you want to borrow a copy of the Bible this morning, just simply raise your hand in all of our rooms. We have ushers available to come on down and, and give you a Bible. You can borrow that and you can just leave it on the seat uh, behind you af- after the service and we'll, we'll collect that. You can follow along in your notes or you can follow on version. your smartphones or tablets. It's all there. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2. And it's the story of the disciples setting up the early church. Now you have to remember, this was a brand new thing for them. Even though this is what we would think towards the end of our Bible or into the New Testament, the first 4,000 years of recorded history, this was the Jewish people, God's people, learning who Jehovah God was and following him. And they had established a routine of rituals and sacrifices and the holy temple. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and establishes something brand new. And there's a group of people who are now believing in Christ, Christ followers, who were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they were going to have to live life differently than what it had been done. And they're just like you and I trying to figure out how can we become the most effective Christ followers. So let's go to the Word and see what they did and see the rule of life that is found in the passage here. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves, here it is, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So Lord... We quiet our hearts and our minds, and we recognize that just because we have an established pattern and rules that have governed our life and our spiritual walk up until now, we confess, Lord, that we may not have it right. And I pray that in the name of Jesus, that you speak to our hearts, that we would become something that is so adhered to the rule that you've set out, to the way that you've made us, so that we would see our church say the same thing that the early church said, that there were people being added to their numbers daily so that everyone was together in unity, Lord, so that there were signs and wonders being performed in their midst. Lord, help us to understand the rule of life that you left for your disciples and for your church and help us to apply it to our lives today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So we see four things here. Very clearly that they were devoted to that they had given themselves to, that they allowed to give structure to the way that they met. And it was modeled by Jesus. The the disciples were establishing something that had been given to them by Jesus. They recorded it in Scripture for us as truth. And now we begin to unpack it here. So the first one is teaching. Acts 2 and 46, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So in our last election, we had a number of hot-button issues, didn't we, that we all had our opinions on. There was the issue of, do we believe that it's important to decrease 
a person's life sentence and offer forgiveness if they've showed reform? Or do we believe that it's important that that person pay the penalty and that they remain in jail for a longer time because there are consequences to every action? And some of us were on one side and some of us were on the other side. And we had, we had our opinions. And then there was the opinion of child care. Do we, do we like the way that we're getting taxes back and the universal child care benefit? Or do we believe we should have more cost-effective child care centers? And we would debate about it and we'd see our leaders go back and forth on this. And then there was... The hot button issue of do we legalize marijuana? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you believe that we should or not in in church this morning. But here's the problem. Many of us hold political views and we say, you know, I'm conservative or I'm liberal and this this is my view. We would say that much more quickly than we would say, I'm devoted to what the Bible says. And I'll see where that falls in line, wherever the political parties may fall. But I'm devoted to the truth in scripture, not to the truth of who I am. And we take truth from scripture and we add it to our reality rather than taking what we're in danger of excuse me is taking our reality and adding the truth of scripture into it rather than saying i'm going to start in truth and then i'm going to layer my experience on top of that and say i'm going to figure out how this works but truth is where i start from not my experience and my reality that's a very subtle difference in 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 the way that we speak but it has mass consequence in the way that it's lived out think about this when you came to christ when you finally said yeah i'm gonna become a christ follower i'm gonna believe in what in jesus he was god's son you had opinions you had commonly held beliefs about what was right what was wrong about what was true and what was not true about how to live your life and then you read the bible and you come to church and you hear somebody teach on things and sometimes your opinion changes and sometimes it doesn't because you have these firm beliefs about what's right and what's wrong and when we look at the early church, it's, that's not what it says. It says that they were founded on the truth of the apostles' teaching, not the truth of what they experienced. And they figured out life from truth. And there's people that say, you know, I'd like to believe in God, but I can't believe in God because in my world I've experienced that bad things can happen to good people, and I, I can't believe in a God. And that's a really dangerous thing to start with your experience. Or they say, you know, I love God. I'm just not going to worship the same way you worship. I, I can't be committed to a church because my experience doesn't allow me to tie into that. And here's what we're saying. We're saying that my belief and my preference has just as much weight and just as much importance as the truth as it's outlined in Scripture. That's a dangerous place to be in, people, where we say, I can have just as much Uh, credit for what I say is what Jesus says. And truth be told, we live in a culture that isn't fully aware of even what it says in the scriptures about all of these hot button issues about the things that were in the election. And the emotionally healthy spiritual person says, I'm devoted to this thing. I'm devoted to the word. I'm devoted to the Bible, not to what I've experienced, not to what I believe to be true. I'm devoted to this thing first, and I'm going to let that transform everything about how I live and believe. And that was the rule that the disciples formed their life with. Here's what 1 Timothy 4 and 13 says. Until I come, this is Paul teaching to Timothy, setting up another church, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and to preaching and to teaching. And then a little further, he, in, the, in his second letter to Timothy 3 and 16, he says that all the scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful, here it is, useful for us to be taught with, for rebuking us if we're out of, because we can get out of line if, if we just, based on our experience, for correcting and for training in righteousness. And when we start here in the word, 
here's what it does. All these divisive issues that, 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 the church quite, that the church fights over and the church has disputes over, where we have feelings about what's marriage and what's divorce and, and tithing and serving and sexuality, all these things that divide us and have split churches and caused hurt and brokenness and anger, when we start with truth rather than a feeling, these issues seem to fall away because we say, I, it's not about how I experience it and how I feel. It's about what the Word of God says. And when we devote ourselves to knowing the truth, it will dictate that some things are just right and some things are just wrong, regardless of how I feel about it. And it will dictate that there is no one who's off worse in sin than another person. In fact, we're all sinners. And we're all on equal ground when it comes to Jesus, so we don't have this hierarchy. It will dictate that we treat people with grace and mercy and we live in truth. And that's the truth in Scripture. When we read it for ourselves and get this full understanding and devote ourselves to that, our life and our understanding of who God is transformed exponentially the same way that the nine times tables had done that to the kids back in school. We can grow leaps and bounds when we start here instead of starting here with us. Second thing that they devoted themselves to, they said, if we're going to pick just a few things that become a rule that we're devoting, it's truth, it's fellowship. Acts 2, 44 and 45. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. If we see in, in chapter 4 and 32, it says all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. The pursuit of happiness is almost never found in the person from it originated from. Think about this. When we're pursuing happiness, it's often found when we develop it in somebody else. The self-centered life is never as fulfilling as we thought it might be. There's a line of thinking that says, if I can find the right job, if I can find the right relationship, if I, even if I can find the right way to connect with God that, that's best for me. Students in the room, you think if I can find the right school, if I can get on the right team, if I can get on, if I can make life good for me, I'll be happy. But here's what the early church figured out, is that that's actually not all that fulfilling. And we weren't designed to be happy when we live for ourselves. One of the rules that God designed for our lives is for fellowship. And the emotionally healthy life is never satisfied until it understands I'm committed to another group of people. And I'm committed to their success more than my own success. And that's the unique thing about our faith. The moment we say yes to Jesus and we've committed our life to him and we've confessed him, our life is no longer about us. It's about another group of people. And in the early church, we see the apostles, they, they sold their property. They considered the feelings and the benefits of others at the same level that they considered their own needs and benefits and feelings. And they were completely happy. They were completely fulfilled. That's not our world, is it? Our world is one that says, when I'm happy, then I'll be fulfilled. And even in our spiritual world, even in our experience here at church, we say, you know, I'm okay to be 100% sold out to God and give my life to God, but I'm not so sure I'm going to be 100% sold out to this community and the people that I sit in church with. And what the disciples figured out is they're never fulfilled until they had this kind of fellowship and they were devoted to one another. Parents in the room, your greatest success is it if you succeed or your, or your kids succeed. It's your kids, right? That's kind of countercultural, isn't it? Because we're saying, if I'm successful, I'm happy. 
where you go, no, I want my kids to succeed because when I contribute to the benefit of somebody else that I love and care about succeeding, that's the absolute most fulfilling thing I could ever experience. Okay, if you're not a parent in the room, I know you were following the Blue Jays this week. Josh Donaldson, he's going to win MVP, hands down, isn't he? But when he grounded out to third base at quarter after 12 on Friday night and we all had the big letdown, the best season he's ever experienced professionally in his his life. Do you think he's happy with that? No. He was committed to another group of people. He was committed to the success of the collective rather than to the success of the individual. And we hear from people all the time, I come to church and it's not a really fulfilling experience. That's why I I only come once or twice a month because church isn't all that fulfilling for me. And we know why. Because we know that there's only about 40% of our church that's actually intentionally connected and committed to another group of people, whether it's on a serving team or in a community life group. We haven't committed to one another. And we say, my spiritual life isn't fulfilling. And the disciples in the early church go, we know why. Because the rule of life, the thing that's foundational, is not only the truth in the word, but is also the fellowship and the commitment to growing together. We forget that the greatest calling that we have is is to love God and to love others and commit to others. It's not just about us. It's about everyone else. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24, 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And we know that there's going to be 2,000 people that walk through Portico's doors today and all our campuses and all our venues, and more than 1,000 of them will feel alone. And if you're in that group, commit to being in fellowship with somebody else. Don't, don't, com- don't just commit to the individual pursuit of who God is. Commit to a group of people and see your spiritual life transform. Serve on a team with somebody. Travel the world on missions together. Go and experience life in community and you will experience a whole new different kind of spiritual growth. See, our community life groups, it's not a program that we want to run because we think you don't have enough to do. <laughs> We know that it's foundational to who you are as a spiritual person. That's one of our values, growing in Christ, growing together in Christ-likeness. Where we grow is when we're committed together. The world says, take care, number one. The disciples said, be devoted to fellowship and community with one another. And right along those same lines as we get to our third point, it's they were also committed when they were in fellowship to the breaking of bread together. And we see that in verse 46. Every time the New Testament church got together, they shared the communion experience. Now that seems a little overkill, doesn't it? Why would you, why would you do that every time? Who, who in the room helps ever uh, serve communion or prepare communion for us? Anybody in the room? Yeah, we have a bunch, right? How would you like it if we said, all right, we're doing that every week. <laughs> you've got to come and you've got to prepare. And, and, the, and the question would be, well, why would we do that? What is, what is the purpose in that? Let's look at the purpose, why the disciples found it foundational to their spiritual growth. See, they were celebrating a historically significant event when, when the Spirit of the Lord passed over God's people in Egypt, and anyone that had shown themselves to be following God and they had marked their doors, the Spirit of the Lord passed over. But anyone who hadn't, and these are the Egyptians, their firstborn child died. And it was the final sign to Egypt to say, fine, let God's people go. And so this historically significant event that they were celebrating, all of a sudden Jesus adds a spiritual significance to it as well. And he says, I'm about to become the ultimate sacrifice. 
God set you free from Pharaoh's rule, I'm going to set you free from sin's rule over your life. And you'll no longer have to pay that price because of what I'm about to do. And he said, take this and drink and take this and eat. And then you'll have perfect community with me. And he brought this group of devoted followers in fellowship who were committed to one another. He brought them in the perfect fellowship with God as well. Both linear, horizontally and linearly, this perfect community and fellowship. So when the church got together, they said, there's nothing else we need to celebrate. We don't need to worry about anything else. We need to just celebrate what Jesus did for us. This is the absolute best expression and what we could do. And in fact, as we read last week in the Corinthian church, they were having full-on parties when they, when, they, when they got together. It was so chaotic that they couldn't even contain it. And they had gone too far. I, I tend to liken it to what happened when the Blue Jays won the pennant and they were all having that crazy party. I think that's what the Corinthian church looked like sometimes. And so they came in and said, no, no, maybe it doesn't look quite like that. But we've dumbed it down to the side where it's, you no know, communion is something we do once a month. And we do it at the last Sunday of the month and we break a piece of wafer and we have a cup of juice and we pass it around and we reflect and we remember. Now, why do, how does that happen? Are we just out of line with scripture? No. It's become functional for us. So that's the way we do it in church because it's a functional way for us to practice and remember Christ's sacrifice for us. But the disciples wanted something a little more than that was just functional. They also want it to be foundational for them. And as a leadership team, and a group of uh, teachers, we said, you know what we want to do is we want to empower our church to go and experience what the Corinthian, not the Corinthian church, but maybe some of the other churches experience the home churches. And they said, this week, instead of having communion on the last Sunday of the month together, which we won't stop doing, but instead of reserving it here, we want you to do it in your homes. We want you to do it in your community life groups. And we want you to go, and, we, and so Pastor Josh has been talking with our leaders and saying this week coming up when, when we're talking about rule of life, before or during or however you want, however it would be appropriate in your group, have a communion experience together. Remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. This is a foundational principle of why we follow Jesus, the only reason why we can have this kind of relationship. So when you get together, celebrate that life that's within you. And now some of you are looking at me, I'm not in a CLG. I can solve that problem for you. We have the CLG experience here every Wednesday. And you can come and experience that this Wednesday as as people meet around tables and, and have this communion experience together where they're reminded of the perfect community that we were brought in with Christ when Jesus instituted in Luke, in the, we read about in the book of Luke 22, 19 and 20. And he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Coming together, having the meal is a lost art in our culture. And it it holds so much of a spiritual significance that we don't even fully understand. You know, even, even the world has figured out that when people come together and have a meal... It's actually transformational. There was a study done by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. They went to 75 countries in the world, and they were doing studies on on families and families that ate together and families that spent time like this together. And here's the stats that they found out. Children who ate the majority of meals with their parents were less truant at school and were more likely to receive a grade of A. Kids, did you hear that? You don't need to study. All you need to do is have dinner with mom and dad this week four out of seven times, right? 
Everything I just said is not entirely true. But, <laughs> but what is true is that the world found out, you know, when kids are eating dinner with their parents, something's changing. Something's different. Kids who ate dinner with their parents were less likely to be overweight and less likely to use drugs and alcohol. They scored higher on their emotional and social well-being when they had the majority of meals eaten in a family context. And that's just dinner. That's not the last supper that Jesus instituted for us. We know that when families, when communities who are committed together take the time to break bread, to share a meal together, it's transformational. Your spiritual life will be totally different. It may be something you've never considered before. And we want to empower us. Portico, let's go and experience this in our churches together. And, and we know we're busy. We know we don't have time. We know that maybe this can't be something every time your small group gets together. Maybe you can't have dinner seven days a week. But let's start somewhere. We're not saying it's easy, but we are saying it's transformational. And if it's transformational, let's find a way to make it to get around it not being the easy part. This week, make a commitment to being in a group, whether it's here, whether it's in your home group, and share in the communion experience together. Do it with your families. Share the meals. Share the communion. It's a rule that when we apply it to our spiritual life, will bring us to places we might never imagine possible before. Okay, last one. Prayer. The regular experience of the early church was when they got together, whether in the temple or at their homes, they formed themselves to the truth of Scripture, to a commitment to each other, to celebrate Christ's gift to them with the breaking of bread, and then the believers would pray for people to encounter the Holy Spirit. Acts 4 and 31, here's a description of their meeting. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Does that sound like your CLG? <laughs> Praise God. I wonder how many times we get together and we just anticipate something wholly different. We come on Sunday and we want to hear some good music and hear a message that will, that will maintain our attention for 30, 40 minutes. And then we'll go have some coffee, and then we'll leave. That's our expectation. I wonder when we go to our home groups, if our expectation is, you know, I'm going to get together with some people, and we'll encourage each other, and it'll be a good night, and as long as we're home by 8.30, we're good. Our culture comes together to listen, to experience. The disciples came together to pray. And when they prayed, they prayed that the world they lived in would encounter the same presence of God that they had experienced in their community. Remember when Jesus taught them how to pray? Because they're basing everything on what Jesus had left for them. And in Matthew 6.10, Jesus prayed, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And since their regular experience was to encounter the Holy Spirit when they prayed, they believed that their meeting together would not only change them, but change the world around them. Lord, your kingdom come where I live in my community. And if you've been tracking along with our Life Journal reading the last few weeks, you've been reading about the book of Acts and how unbelievable their town looked completely different after they prayed and after they received this experience. It's full of, people, of stories of people being freed from jail and men and women turning their lives lives around and encountering Christ and the believers going right up to even their political leaders and being able to share truth with them boldly, strongly. And these were direct results of the commitments to the rules of life for their church and the commitment to prayer. And James 5 and 16 says this, 
The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do you believe that, church? You believe that? Okay. Then let's get practical. This morning, our worship team's going to come, and they're going to underscore just with the music from that song we've been singing, the creed. And that's the Apostles' Creed. The things that they wrote out that they believe. I believe in God, our Father, and I believe in Christ, the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. They're going to underscore that this morning because those were the foundational principles of the early church. And this morning, we want to end with a time of prayer. And this is going to be a time of prayer that God would release His kingdom in our midst. Not that we would see just some things happen, but God's kingdom be released in our midst, in our, in our collective church, in our home church, in our community where we live, we would see things absolutely changed. You know, I've talked with a number of Christ followers this week and we're disappointed with the results of our election because we now have a leader that's not favorable to the Christian faith. Well, we can pray. We can pray and it does, that, like I said, I'm committed to truth in scripture, not to a political party. So I'm gonna pray that our leader becomes favorable to the Christian church and his truth goes out. And his truth changes our world, that his truth changes our world, not truth in a political party. I'm going to pray this for the next few weeks. We're going to be praying for the persecuted church. This is the time in our calendar where we always bring it back to, we need to pray for the people and the leaders and the church in a place where they're not even allowed to speak the name of Jesus. We need to pray that truth is released there and that people's lives are changed, that that their political um, community is changed and they can begin to speak out loud and boldly the name of Jesus. And if you're not in a place in your faith this morning where you really want to participate in a group prayer, we're going to permission you. You don't have to participate in this. Just take a few moments and reflect on what the truth in the Word of God was this morning. But if you are in a place where you believe in the Word of God and you want to grow spiritually, I am going to put a little pressure on you and say, we're going to pray together. And we're going to pray that His kingdom is released in our world and our world is changed. Would you stand with me this morning? Would you stand to your feet? And God has called us not to be devoted to anything else than to the truth in his word, the community of other people, and to pray. So the band's going to underscore, and I'm just going to encourage you right now. Find a group of three or four around you if you're comfortable with that, and begin to pray that his kingdom is, is released in our midst. Go ahead right now, just even as, as, as I'm talking. Dwayne's going to come back and close us out, and we'll sing that truth. But go now, begin to pray the kingdom of God released in our kingdom, and we'll close out with singing the creed in a few moments.